You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from. Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I am Mercedes Murphy and I am a theater director. Um, I do mostly device theater, so I end up also being a little bit of a writer and a little bit of a designer and a little bit of a producer and a little bit of a mama. So all of that. I love it. Well, I'm so excited to have you, as I said, just a couple minutes before we started recording. Um, you were my movement professor in college at Montclair State University freshman year. And I have to say, just to get us going, when I was in the Montclair State program for acting, it was very movement. Uh, there was a lot of movement components to the program. And whenever people would ask me, what are you doing in school? And I would say movement as one of the things that I was doing in school. They would always say, well, they were so confused. I couldn't really explain what it is we did. So I'm wondering if you have some sort of, um, some sort of way to encapsulate what movement in the theater for the actor looks like in your brain. Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like a lot of what guides me is sort of that sort of abyss between who we are and who we want to be. And a lot of that sort of escapes words. And so therefore we're left with movement, you know, or song. Um, And so my training was heavily focused on the viewpoints and Grotowski. And so the viewpoints is a way to sort of work on stage composition. It's, you know, originally I studied with Mary Overly who had um, a sort of orientation more towards dance. And then I worked with Ann Bogart, who is more theater-based, but both heavily rooted in movement being sort of the engine and the driver for the creation of work. You know, Um, I think the thing that separates me, and maybe we can talk about it later, is actually the amount of sort of like research and source work I do and like pair that with. But... um, Movement really, you know, anyone who's taken my class, we have always start the same way. And I feel like movement is such a nice sort of way to get a really awful, painful routine that you do again and again. So you can show up one day and not want to be there. I'm so happy you brought that up. Can you explain to the listeners what that routine is? Yeah. Okay. So um, it's been called by um, my loving students, the circle of pain. And it is a combination. It starts almost like um, a yoga slash Pilates movement sort of sequence. But my focus from the beginning, we start with breath. So it's sort of a frenetic guided meditation if that makes sense. Um, The most important thing is first you stand in a circle, which is why it's called the circle of pain. And you find a partner across the um, circle from you and you make direct eye contact with them and start breathing with them. And that is the most essential part of it because as soon as you have that partner, that connection um, becomes very real. 
And I feel like there's lots of times when there's movement training that it is, you know, that might be what separates us from, say, a ballet class or a you know, jazz class or a modern class is it really is about trying to connect with another actor or creator in the space in that moment. So that's the way the circle starts and it progresses through the different sort of sun salutes. And then it very quickly sort of either evolves or devolves depending on, on how it's going into more um, Grotowski work, which is, um, plastiques and a really um, sort of rigorous physical exertion. Uh, I try to actually physically exhaust the actors to the point where they, they have nothing less to accept their experience of that sort of exhaustion. You know, that's where I always say that exhaustion is the edge of discovery. Um, and it sounds crazy and it sounds like I'm, I'm militant and a bully but it actually, like, everyone gets to draw their own line of where that exhaustion is. And sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional, and sometimes you never find it. But either way, it sort of gives you a way to take your focus off yourself and start to already get the wheels going sort of creatively. I mean, just hearing you talk about that is, like, making me, like, you know, having gone through that makes me, like, just salivate to do that again, especially after the past couple of months of coronavirus, you know? So, I mean, you don't sound militant. It's it's really something that I, I think you can really become addicted to doing that sort of practice. I think it's – I actually feel that everyone would benefit from it um, because just the idea of getting the attention off yourself – and trying to be present is um, two sort of muscles that have not really been used that much in our current society. Um, but I think they're essential for a creative process and for a really thoughtful exchange where hopefully you ask at least one hard question that maybe you don't find an answer to, but at least you tried, you know? And I do feel like bringing your whole body to that means you're bringing your heart, your mind, and your soul. Where sometimes you can sit around a table and sort of break down. Like I've been thinking about Three Sisters nonstop during the pandemic. I think to Moscow is like to the election. Um, but like there's a part where it really is you could sit there and talk about Three Sisters or you could get up, do the circle, and then get on a grid, which we haven't really talked about yet. Maybe I'll explain that in a second. And you have a totally different connection to the work, to the people in the room. And that's when it becomes theater because it could only happen then with those people in that room, in that circle. So you talked about at first, you like when you first get started, you're making the connection with it, like one person across the circle from you. Are you keeping that connection with that one person or are you then expanding it to incorporate everybody or anybody? A great question. I, you know, Brian could probably chime in. I hope, and when it's, you know, is first it, you get your focus off yourself, it goes on to the other person, and then all of a sudden it's strange. You sort of like a tree growing roots. All of a sudden the people on either side of you become important and become your partners to sort of stay focused on the person across from you. All of a sudden you're starting to realize there's like some fuckwad who's behind everyone else who's too slow. There's someone else who's like incredible. And the whole time you're, it's really, it's not like this sort of, you know, crazy sort of shafts of sunlight and sort of this harps and uh, like 
you know, a choir of Oz. It's, it really is in the room, hating someone who's too loud and breathes weird, like, like loving someone that they'll never know how much you love them. And just these little moments, like really being in the room. I think sometimes people think of being present as being like good, <laughs> like, no, if you can have all the other emotions. So it totally, your focus goes everywhere. It goes, you know, I sort of talk about um, the idea of having the focus like right in front of you. And then you can have the like right to your partner, behind your partner, extending outside the room, extending to, you know, the edge of the, you know, riverfront, extending into Manhattan, extending past Manhattan into Brooklyn. And the idea of like that focus keeps on sort of irising in and out. And that is what really great theater is. That's like no theater. The idea that at one moment you can be so focused on some very essential sort of main event and then all of a sudden a new audience member enters and your focus can change to somehow trying to intend with that audience member that they're going to feel the beginning energy of the play while you keep the plot moving forward, you know? So you sort of have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and physical exhaustion I think helps that. I'm trying to remember, as you were explaining the beginning of this, I was brought back to when I was assistant directing a production at Montclair. And I feel like the the movement, I think she was the choreographer, even though it was a play, because it was um, Pride and Prejudice. I think she it was Heather. I don't remember yeah. her last name, but I'm sure she was... But are you shaking your head? Yes, Brian, because yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I remember I just like walked into rehearsal one day and not knowing what was happening. And it was I was like, oh. Oh, yeah. They were doing all sorts of interesting shit with that show. They were like embodying <laughs> chairs and uh, some interesting things going on there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very meta. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right. How how did you get into like how was movement first introduced to you? And huh. your career, like how are you able to kind of build that into who um, you are? Complete Midwestern naivete, to be completely honest. I'm from Missouri and I got into NYU and I wanted to go to Experimental Theater Wing because it sounded badass. <laughs> like, and then I went there and it was really like heavily dance focused. I was completely the wrong match for me in terms of studios, which was a blessing. And I think... Um, you know, I worked with Mary Overly, and Bogart, um, Wendell Beavers, Steve Wong. Oh, so, you, so you stayed, even though you, you, yeah. you said it wasn't a match, you actually like kept the program. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, only uh, it really, because what happened is through that movement, you have such a physical experience, you get a really clear understanding of your artistic voice. You know, I think people think an artistic voice is something way more lyrical and poetic. You know, where it really is like I've it and it also mimics my artistic voice, I think, mimics my artistic process where like the beginning of any process, I think I know it all. And I like am all hustle and bustle and entitled. And then all of a sudden, as soon as reality hits, like the first rehearsal, I am panicked and terrified and hate everything. And I go through this like period of hate for like a couple of weeks. No one knows I'm hating it because I have the Midwestern thing down. But there's a part where without that physical part of the process, I don't feel I would be able to like attack the work the same way. You know, like I have to wear myself out and wear my sort of all the self-criticism, all the sort of uh, 
pricklies around, oh my gosh, that person came late. They don't like this show or that person thinks they should be cast for that. Or, you know, this person's in the room and they gave this amount of money. All those dumb little competing voices in your head. The only way I can quiet them is through wearing myself out. So I can laser focus in on what it really feels like to be in the room with these people talking about this event, you know? And where did your your world of or your interest in directing and your interest in movement kind of collide? Do you remember a specific point in your career or your training where you said, you know, this is going to be that sort of thing that I use in my process? I think it has always been a part of me. Otherwise, I, I for me, it just gets too precious, you know? And the problem is I I'm probably one of the most sentimental and sort of like mama bear type people. So when it becomes precious, it becomes so annoying and shitty and like bad made for TV after school special crap. You know, there's nothing like edgy. You're not inviting the audience in in any way. And it's super self-indulgent. And you're just patting yourself on the back, even if you make a good theatrical choice. You know, so there's a part where for me, I think the physicality that has become like, like the only way I can enter into anything is because I want to be physically present because emotionally I'm sort of pinballing around, you know, and that's a combination of being, I think a good director sort of really tries to figure out every character's arc. And then you sort of figure out which which arc you want to dial up on the dials, which arc you want to dial down. And you sort of think of yourself more like a sound mixer, you know? Um, but in order to do that really well, I think you have to have a stillness and a quiet. And I just haven't found it any other way except to physically exhaust. And also I feel like I don't know how to not do ensemble work. Um, I'm one of eight originally. So I was born into an ensemble. And so there's a part where um, I I need the group. And so a way to get going with the group is the circle, you know? And so we'll do, and I had said this earlier, but like the grid work, which is a combination of like Mary Overly's viewpoints and Ann Bogart's viewpoints, and now my own sort of evolution. It's, I've come to what I call my version of grid work is where after we do the circle and we're like physically drenched, I'm like my hot pink Irish skin self. And the actors are wondering why the director is chasing them around the room. We start to just get on a grid and only have one option, which is right angle turns. And just the beauty of like the economy of choice of just having to turn and then actually interact and exchange with other people in the room, you start to realize they're probably, I've said this all the time in all my classes, there's really only one story. A meets B, A loses B, A gets B back, A loses B forever. So all of a sudden you realize like what you're there for is actually what's going on in your life. You know, like we could read any play right now and, and be like, oh my God, this could not be done any other time except this fucked up time we're living in. I mean, the fact that I feel like somehow three sisters is like, has to be done right now. I've been stuck in this house forever. 
you know, and like Moscow has been Manhattan. Moscow has been away from my children. Moscow has been into a theater. Moscow has been in a circle. Like this idea of nostalgia and homesickness becomes amazing. And homesickness takes on a whole different definition. And like the only way I could think about entering into that is walking around only making right angles and being forced to confront that feeling I have brought to rehearsal again and again and find that one little sanctuary of a turn into someone else and be like, oh my God, I could lean into that person or oh my God, I could slap that person, you know? And then you have your like four events, A met B, A lost B, A got B back, A loses B forever. But it all happens just on the grid with right angles. Only after you're so exhausted, you're only left with your dirty stinking self and the other people in the room. After you've been at home for seven months, you can't go <laughs> right? out. You can't go out. <laughs> you're so sick of all the we're, fees that DoorDash charges. Yes. We're ready to go. <laughs> Put me in, coach. Um, so, I mean, there's so much vivid storytelling. So even though this is just an, you know, an audio medium that we're, we're talking in right now, there's so much, uh, so many visuals that I, I hope that our listeners are able to grab from what you were just saying, as I've been able to do throughout that so I'm wondering how you approach a script as a director and utilize your movement background. So the movement is like my sort of life jacket, my like buoy, my, you know, lighthouse, because I do the exact opposite of movement for like weeks to months before a show starts. I find every translation, any adaptation, I normally do Greek or sometimes like a little bit of no. I like old dead guys. Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett. Like if they're alive, I don't want to be with them because then it's their work, you know? And I'm not, I don't consider myself a writer, but maybe like, uh, you know, a divisor. And so I will find every possible book ever written on it. If there's a book about how a ghost enters a state, like on stage in a Euripidean tragedy, I am on that white on rice to the point where it's annoying to be like, oh, oh, the Persians that happened during the Archimedes period. That's amazing. Yes. So many incredible things. Like no one in the theater cares, especially because I don't really do sort of um, time period type work. I really sort of contextualize it in either a very specific event in history or an event I wish happened, like a revisionist history. Um, then I'll fall down the rabbit hole of learning about that event in history. Um, I feel like, and this is where it becomes very political for me, but I think about like, where were the black people? Where were the LGBTQX people? Like, like where were all, the, where were all my people and how do they fit into this show? And then sometimes I find it and it's really obvious. And then sometimes I just sit and cross my fingers during like the audition process that like that dream date comes into the room and everyone else is like, what the fuck are you thinking? Even having that person read like not the right age, not the right gender. That, like, and I'm like, no, this person knows winning. This person knows fighting. This person knows losing, whatever it is. But somehow I feel like that core connection is there. Um, I'll do that. But otherwise, I'm pickling myself. I like fall down. Anytime I lose my mojo, I I go into YouTube and I like I call it like the the spank file. Like I literally will just watch 
amazing choreography like Pina Bausch you know I will I will find whatever beautiful like movement like for a long time um like during the Persians because we had a really big cast I was really into um in Japan they have these walking competitions like speed walking like and they walk in different formations and it's about like 300 people in a squad walking and making formations it's like the sort of like a marching band but it's the precision like all of a sudden they make a diagonal line out of nowhere and it is my heart leaps <laughs> like it's just so visually visually amazing and it's you know or like it's the same as the rockets you know i'm a sucker for like a bunch of people making a line um but i will do that and then i feel like i've known like i know the whole show i break it down sort of act by act, scene by scene. I ask if there are any scenes I can get rid of, any acts I can get rid of. Um, and normally I've fallen in love with all of them at that point. So I'm very precious and I'm afraid to what I call kill the baby. So I keep it all. And then I go through beat by beat by beat for each character. And I do all the paperwork of like, what's their objective? What if you had to say this sort of event for them in one sentence, what was it? What is the arc, like the emotional arc from timid uh, flirting to savage sodomy? Like whatever, you know, like whatever, like there's an emotional arc. Uh, then I try to think of forward motion, which I think is the best one. It's sort of like the more he looks at me, the more I want to kiss him. So there's sort of this, you know direct correlation of like, if, if this character does something, it will affect me this, this way. Um, I'm trying to think of other paper. I do loads of paperwork. I have a big black sketchbook that I write all these different things on and there are all these weird bubbles and it looks sort of like a strange, like Ted Gudzinski type Unabomber thing that makes no sense. My writing is awful. Um, and then I take it like shivering to auditions, hoping like all my boyfriends and girlfriends will show up <laughs> and like they all want to play and they all don't, I don't scare them. And then we start like talking to like designers and stuff. And again, I get like completely overwhelmed and nervous thinking like, shit, they're going to think this is a wall crazy idea. And then we start rehearsal. And for the first two days, I pretend to be normal and have table talk. And then I ask everyone to dress for movement and the shit hits the fan. <laughs> There's always one actor who hates me. <laughs> so when you get in the room with the actors and you start to to go through and do all the table work, do the beats that you wrote down months or weeks prior, do they change? It all gets thrown out within the first like 30 minutes. Wow. Like some of it comes back at the end, but honestly, like – I find it the most valuable thing is to like make an entire playbook and then never use it and then sit in the room and have someone else sort of pick their beats. And then, cause it always ends up like after you've been physically exhausted or you, you've done, cause we do things 200, 300, 400 times. And then we get really granular. I'm like, okay, so now if you could sit forward, okay, wait, if you could sit forward with both your feet on the floor, but when you sit forward, could you put your head in your hands? And they do that. I'm like, okay, now what's your version of that? Or sometimes someone else be like, you know what I was thinking? What if I was on the floor? You know, 
And they were like, okay, let's do that. But how do we get you to the floor? And bit by bit by bit, we will do a scene. And so whatever I imagine to the point where I have little like stick figure drawings in the bubble with like really shitty tables and really weird sort of like, you know, like platforms and whatever the set is. And they, it just looks weird, like these little stick figures. Like none of it really happens that way. You know, and that's the, that's my favorite thing about theaters. Like every time you go, someone else comes and it's like they brought a surprise, you know? And so you have all these ideas and sometimes they work and you can throw them in and be like, okay, I have an idea. Let's try this and it'll work. But otherwise someone else might come and have a completely, and it could take you in a completely wrong direction. And I am one of those people that am happy to do that. Um, I think it pisses people off sometimes, but I feel like it's like in, I call it, it's like in the soup, you know, like you don't taste all the onions, but they're there. Um, and so there's like sort of you're building in layers. Some of the work, only the, only the cast will know about, you know, and like, so the beats could change a lot. And um, well, how far how far in the quote unquote wrong direction do you go until you're like, OK, this is clearly not working. Like, are you able to identify immediately that it's not working? Um, no, sometimes I know I'm this is an exercise in being a, a good mama, you know, um, and that's why they have like union breaks, <laughs> you know, because um, everyone starts to feel it. But there's something about letting everyone else feel it, too, because the same way you feel that's not working you can feel when it does work. You know, there's like two sides to that feeling. Or even if, you know, a lot of times, even in like just a normal, not devised play with with a script and everything, you're going to, as an actor, you're going to come up with a lot of your backstory that may never actually get put on stage, you yeah. know? So it's like you're filling that sort of, I know you would call it a container. You're filling your container with all this stuff so that it's there and you can have that full performance. Yeah. I think that that's the thing that um, the more work you do, um, you're not doing the work for it to show up on stage. You know, you're not going to be able to point to a moment and be like, oh, you know what? I think that she's read all of the poetics. I think she, I think she, she crushes the poetics. She knows all about the unity of time, baby. No, it's about like, it's dedication. Like not like I'm a hard worker. It's I am dedicating myself. And that's where all the beauty and the surprises and everyone will be like, where did you guys find that one moment? We're like, how could we not? We looked under every rock in the forest. How could we not? And that's what like, so Brian earlier, like just said, like the container thing. So like a lot of the times, like we'll sort of talk about like the substance and the cover, you know, and you can think of that, like that cover being like a container, you know, and I think that's where we start to find um, really exciting performances is where we realize we don't have to really share anything with the audience. Like every audience, we've all had all the like experiences we've ever had to have in high school. <laughs> like honestly, like we've been betrayed. We've had like had our like our hearts open, like cracked wide open. We've been disappointed. We've, you know, had like some huge like wins, like everything is already there. So you don't have to really be very illustrative or heavy handed because the text is there. 
and the people are in the room. So like, I really like I creep out actors sometimes because they're like, well, it says you're supposed to cry here. I'm like, first of all, you should have cut all those stage directions the first day of rehearsal. And also that doesn't, that's not how it works. Like, like, like that's for the audience to decide, you know, that like their experience is always going to trump that. And if you have a strong enough container, you can really hold it back until the right moment, you know? And so that's another reason why the physicality is so important because to actually like, I mean, everyone like has had a really um, awful, stressful event in their life where they just felt so fatigued that they couldn't hold it together. And they know the exact moment they broke, you know, and someone's like, how are you doing? And it was the wrong person with the right question at the wrong time. And you just lose it because physically you can't sustain that level of keeping it together. You know, but most of theater should be about keeping it together to honor those moments. You know, that's why I love the idea of containers and I love the idea of like developing a physical stamina because like it should feel like real life. And if you think about the stakes of any really good show, that's fucked up that you can't tell anyone that you killed your mother, you know, like whatever it is like that is an exhausting secret. So it like physically you have to be able to mimic that because I think it's much safer than trying to do that emotionally. Yeah, I mentally. Think that's, yeah, people get really reckless and sort of will I like I call it like emotional masturbation. Well, they will imagine something and do like what ifs. Like and it it can work especially for most good actors because they're very empathetic, but that's dangerous. That's not the way we should like, like, yeah, especially if you're trying to like recreate that several times a week or however long the run, yeah, you're going to burn it out. It's like, it's going to be like, ah, fuck it. She's dead. <laughs> you know, like, I feel better. Find another one. Yeah. Can I ask you about your relationship with a dramaturg? I'm um, fascinated yeah. by, I mean, I'm just fascinated in general with like the research that any, any of us do to put together th- like a piece of art, but I, what you've described as your process, I feel like it ties very closely to what traditionally, I don't even know if I want to use that word, but what a dramaturg would be doing. So I'm curious as to how you, if you work with a dramaturg and how that relationship works. Yes, totally. Um, I rely heavily um, at two different, at the beginning and the end. So at the beginning, all the research, you know, I, I I don't find any, normally I always find the weirdest thing first, you know, (laughs) where like there are a lot of directors will have like a much more sort of um, traditional approach where they'll go to Lincoln Center, watch the tape, see, see what like other performances have been like, sort of, you know, just studying sort of other versions of the show. Um, I sort of find one thing that I love about a show and sort of go in that direction and then the whole time try to like break up with the, with the idea. And so dramaturgs help a lot because sometimes um, they're able to help me articulate something that I didn't know I was onto. You know, I sort of try to always enter into things being very sort of um, naive. I sort of call it like unlearning things, like not, you know, just sort of a blank slate. And so there are times where a dramaturg can gently sort of remind me that, like, yeah, this is actually pretty normal. <laughs> this is just called catharsis. Um, uh, and also there are times when I, I want to fall down the rabbit hole of, like, studying some 
sort of really weird idiosyncratic um, sort of theatrical convention. And I will need a dramaturg to help me with the work of just sort of the historical context I want to put it in and sort of finding out any, because that, that's where you find the little gems and like those special moments where, you know, because that's the other, I always want to assume that the audience is smarter than me. And that their, you know, their understanding of the play and also just their, like, basic understanding of wherever this play is placed in historical context, they're going to know, they're going to, they're going to look for Easter eggs. And so, like, the dramaturg I rely on for Easter eggs. So we do a lot of that at the beginning because then we try to get all the other sort of members of the production, like designers, actors, excited about that idea that like we're making this special sort of jeweled faceted little box for the audience and how many different things can we make to find so an audience can have a totally different experience based upon the other people in the audience or based upon how they enter into the show or based upon like I mean like right now like just based upon like the news cycle you could watch a show one day and it could be a tragedy the next day it could be a comedy if you do it well enough, you know, if there are enough Easter eggs where it feels like, you know, maybe ironic or prophetic or heartbreaking. Um, so dramaturgs are super duper critical. And then at the end, they're like, I always invite someone that I feel um, really competitive with to see of the show and like see what they say, because I can feel if they like it or not. And then I, I have a, a dramaturg so we can cut the shit out of it. Because I think that my work best, like best works at 90 minutes, like no intermission and really fast and just like almost trying to get the audience to physically feel what the circle would be like where you just can't let them go. Don't give them a chance to go. Just don't give them a chance to go. And not not because like they're going to run from the theater screaming because like, what the fuck is this theater? But like, it's just you don't want it has to be unrelenting. The momentum, too. Yeah. A lot of yeah, a lot of the work that I've seen you do is is very momentum driven, I think. Yeah. And you'd lose a lot of that with that break in between. Yeah, no, I think it also like you a lose lot of theater, it. I mean contemporary theater recently is very 90 minutes packages, I, you know? Well, I think we don't have the stamina anymore, but I also think there's a part where we're making a different type of theater and so there's a part where that type of we're sort of or I don't know for me and the the work that I've really enjoyed watching as an audience member, it has a sort of a sustained energy level that can't last. And then you can't, you don't want to pick it up again. If you're given a break, you don't want to be forced to like do hard investigations, you know, or be put in uncomfortable, like sort of situations as an audience member. You know, you sort of want the second half to be more like singing in the rain. (laughs) Like, and so like, the dramaturg for me really helps figure out because I always end up having like three quarters of the show done and the actors are terrified and we have like two days before tech and we have like the finale of the show to do and everyone's like, how is this going to happen? Like it'll happen. Just believe it'll happen. And it happens through sort of carving through the front part and realizing maybe we can just sort of backload some of those things and steal. Sometimes we actually will steal physical staging and put it in the 
last part, realize we were sort of like shooting our wad too early. Or sometimes we'll do it again because it was worth it. Or sometimes we'll realize maybe we need stillness. But we almost finish, finish, I always finish the show by shortening and tightening up the first third of the show. Because I really believe as a director and like the most important thing is the beginning and the end. Like the audience, like the, like that is what they remember most. And there have been shows that were so shitty, but had amazing openings and amazing final events that there's a part where I like to, I hope I do a good enough job throughout that like I'm not just relying on two little bookends to call it a theatrical piece. But I think that that beginning and end is another thing that the dramaturg always helps me with. And they'll be like, eh, this is really gimmicky. This is really stupid. And I'll be like, okay, I was lying to myself. Cause the problem is really like the circle also can engender this like loyalty to like just collaboration, you know? And so you need the dramaturg to help sort of be like a second director and be like, cut it. <laughs> you know, like that'll just be in the soup. Like there's just more onions for the soup, you know? Um, yeah, so dramaturgs, I don't know I don't know how people don't have dramaturgs. I'm wondering where you see the use of movement in contemporary or and specifically commercial contemporary theater. And if you see a use for it, I've noticed, and maybe it's just that thing of like once you're introduced to something, you notice it more. Yeah. But I mean, I've noticed a lot of commercial theatrical productions even on Broadway, utilizing a lot of movement in their storytelling. Yeah. I, well, I think it's a product of two things. Um, I think that we all, like, it. I used to pride myself on having, like, really edgy music selections that's gone. Like, everyone can find the same. Oh, you, have the be- you had the best playlist. I know, but, like, like, that needle in the haystack, like, sort of feather in your cap thing is gone. Um, so, so everybody I think has Spotify. You know, it, yeah, <laughs> I think, and everyone has like, you know, like Shazam, I know it now too, bitch. Um, but like, I think it's the, you know, the ubiquitous sort of flattening of sources a little bit. But then I also think it maybe like the other way to say that is like, it's just like, there are more people watching and they're coming from different places. It's the same reason why like action movies sell out in our blockbusters because like it transcends language. And I think we are a very, like TikTok has made us very visual. I see it everywhere. I see it all the time. Like that's the thing. One of the things I miss the most is walking around midtown Manhattan on the grid and no one would know it. Like being like, oh my gosh, we're doing such a great floor pattern and they don't know it. (laughs) Um, I miss like those like lovely little exchanges, but I do feel like it's, and I actually see it a lot in sort of um, like web-based series as well, where I think that there's um, like, I just watched with my, my children's star girl. Have you seen, it's like a Disney plus movie. It's, but it's like Disney's crushing their like physical theater game now. How so? <laughs> um, they so I'm not the story is this, girl. it's actually cute. It's some girl that was in um, America's Got Talent, and um, she's just like really unique and idiosyncratic on her own as an artist. Has a really great gravelly girl voice, but they cast her as this sort of um, outsider that comes into a sleepy town and wakes it up. But she has this. Her love interest thinks she's magic. And so she starts going to the football games and singing cover songs during the halftime show. 
and the half like the halftime show become more and more physically driven. So like it's like if you think of like American Utopia, David Burns physical like and like it's happening. It's happening at Disney Plus. It's happening everywhere. And I think it's um it has to do with there's also I think there's like I think people who have like I don't know, or at least like-minded people are so sick of everything's on repeat, except it just gets exponentially worse and more horrific and shitty. So somehow just doing something physically feels like a little island of quiet and like a, a nice way to communicate some type of, you know, sort of um, either if it's like a rising action or, you know, like just in terms of thinking of like a script, like, some, sometimes right now, like maybe we don't even need to talk because we're all so on the same page that we don't want the words to divide us. And that physicality feels very unifying and, and, um, energizing. Yeah. I was, I was thinking, I was going to ask, do you think that it's a purposeful plan or objective in, in the Disney plus model that you just talked about that star girl where that was like a purposeful action? Or do you think that it's become so like what you said, like the TikTok society now is kind of just like ingrained in us without us even realizing. So Mandy Moore choreographed all the, the halftime shows. So I think it's just the, the choreographers that are coming up now are products of that, like Ryan Effington, you know, like they're so like they're products of, YouTube of TikTok. And so that is how, how we have those worlds collide, you know, like Disney and awesome weird movement based, you know, covers of be true to your school, um, on a ukulele with like a big bass drum and a hot sort of like flume sounding horn section. But I think that is like, there's a part where I'm very excited about that. And then sometimes I'm like, okay, maybe I can retire. <laughs> like, like my work here is done. <laughs> you all do movement. Um, but I think it's really like a product of our time. I think that we're um, maybe hopefully it's um, a sign that like everything's becoming a little more um, equitable. And like, there's sort of like a universal language that can happen once that happens. That's like my hope. That like, you know, it's like a code for like, this is a good place to be. And we like making fucked up shit, you know, or uh, in Disney's case, sweet idiosyncratic stuff. Um, a couple of years ago, you decided to leave MSU as an adjunct. I'm wondering what made you not necessarily leave that particular school because there were probably reasons there, but uh, just, you know, transitioning into something a little different for a for lack of a better word, like a civilian job? Yeah. Um, mostly it was health, health insurance, to be honest. Um, and then I had before, I've always taught like since, since graduate school and I love it. I find it in like essential to my creative process actually. Um, but there, I just sort of the, all the different competing needs for my time, I realized I was losing why I was teaching. Like I, like the engine was sort of getting tapped out. So it's funny because now I find myself in the middle of pandemic. <laughs> I have loads to do and I'm stuck in my room. Um, but so I've, I think it's now I'm really happy doing maybe one show, maybe every two years. And when it feels like the moment is right. Um, because it just, uh, 
I don't know. I, I that's my new cycle, you know. Right. Um, yeah. That's that's kind of what I was trying to get yeah. at. It's like, what's your relationship now to the theater? And uh, where does that, you know, like sit in your um, it's two different ways. Your world. I've, yeah, I it, it I'm I think that like for a long time I did device theater because I didn't have the discipline or the confidence to write. And so now I have like lots of writing and I realized <laughs> why I didn't have the confidence because it's it's just so there's so much to go through. Like for me, my process is like just generation, generation, generation. So now like the next step is like editing, which is going to be interesting. I'll keep you posted. Um, and then the other sort of side of that is like, I, I see like almost like, um, uh, like a, like a Peace Corps mission. Like, I feel like this is essential work for everyone right now. Like connection, and like being, I, I see it, um, people the, are, people just call, this as in the movement. No, like my, like the, this approach, what, what this, not necessarily movement, but what, oh, it, what you're doing, the, where the you product are. of it, the product of it being, um, being willing to listen longer, being willing to be wrong, being willing to change your mind, Trusting your work enough, knowing that you don't have to have it stick the first day of whatever you're doing. You know, it's sort of um, realizing whatever you're working on, and it could be either theater, it could be, uh, you know, uh, you could be, you know, a litigator, you could be uh, sort of a legislator, you could, whatever you are, I feel like theater that approach of what I said before, being kind to yourself, being kind to others, willing to be wrong, like sticking it through when it gets uncomfortable. You know, it like it, I think it would serve everyone really well. And so I do enjoy bringing that into like other settings. I'd, I am so sad to have it be such a breath of fresh air for so many people. To say I was totally off base. I had no idea what you're talking about, and I just started talking. I'm so sorry. And people were like, "What?" <laughs> like, like, but like that. Like, there. I often had students come up and be like, "I don't. I don't know if I should do theater. I'm terrified. I, I'm not comfortable with it. I think I should drop out of the program." And I think their parents might have hated me. I'm like, "You have to stick in the program." And they're like, "Why?" I'm like, "Because you won't do theater, but you will take this training with you out into the world." I mean, you kind of did that yourself. I've done it right? again and again. I've had so many different jobs. And I think that's also one of the reasons why I end up doing the type of theater I do. Because, like, if, if you've been in a multiple different sort of uncomfortable situations and had to sort of start again and again, you realize that, like, although starting sucks, and I really hate it. Like, the first, like, leading up to rehearsal, the first days of rehearsal and the first rehearsal, like... I hate it. And it takes every ounce of me to be like upbeat and positive. I just sort of feel like it's just, it's just dirty and having to get started and everyone's fake and we're all like proving each other, like proving it's things like to each other. It's like that small talk. It's a small yeah. talk thing yeah, mentality. It's so annoying. And I like want to get straight to it. But if you rush it, it's like you're a cheap date. It doesn't work. They never call you back. You know, like it doesn't work. 
So, I mean, that's a long, but I really feel like, so like my life in terms of like theatrical life and sort of outside of theater professional life. And like, it's always been a weird ebb and flow. Uh, but I think that they're both essential to each other because the longer I'm outside of it this time, the more I know the next couple of things I have to do have to be almost like I call it for like my 12 year old self that like knew I should be doing this, you know, and be like, don't worry, girl, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to get this one. Um, and then I also feel like in all the other settings, I do believe that any person who is worth their salt in making good theater makes every place they go better, you know, because they bring their whole selves to everything. And people can't not do that. You know, like people, like if I show up and I'm ready to work and like the other douchebag and this like WebEx sort of is like, they get, they feel it. They feel like they're not present, you know? And that idea of being present is like the best thing that anyone can do right now. You know, I just want to share a quote. And if you have a response to it, feel free. Awesome. So the quote that I chose is from Arthur Miller. And he says, the theater is so endlessly fascinating because it's so accidental. It's so much like life. Yeah, I hope like if you do it right, it all should look like an accident. Like I, yeah. So like, this is different, but this is sort of what I tell all my actors. Like when we're like somewhere that everyone hears about the white van. Um, I, that it, was on my <laughs> list of questions and, and I like, I just passed so it. This is my fantasy. Fine. So but it's sort of like share the white van. my version of the accident. But like, I sort of feel like theater is required, essential like the the same way, like everyone needs to do a certain amount of physical activity and you need to put the right food in your body and you should read certain things and vote for certain people, whatever. Um, I feel like everyone should have to do theater. So I have this fantasy that I have a white van that probably has a very large carbon footprint and like sputters and backfires is like a really a kidnapper van. And I pull up to different people's houses, but it's like, like literally pedal to the metal, probably 60, 60 miles per hour to like a screeching halt, like burnt tires. And I literally run in there. Like I'm like storming their house and I kidnap them. I put a sack on their, like their head, throw them in the back of the car and I get the whole cast that way. And then I load them up and like we zip over to the theater. I crash into the loading dock. The car is completely totaled and I push them on stage. And then they all of a sudden find themselves disoriented, fearful, scared, but strangely feeling this strange need to be in this room with these people right now telling this story. So there's a part where like, it should feel like a surprise for the actor too. Like nothing is guaranteed. So maybe it's sort of like that, like accidental idea, but I, I want it to be that level of surprise and excitement that like, you know, it's, I really think of theater like every time we get to it like a preview or when we open up I everyone like this is like my wedding day and and it's because you sort of plan your whole wedding and you or you don't forget but you don't think about all the people that are going to be there and so you're thinking of like all the you know the details the flowers the dress whatever whatever and then all of a sudden you go there and these people are here and it's the most overwhelming moving thing in the world to think that people showed up because it's this is important to them. 
And I always want every actor on stage to have that moment because I talk about breaking the third wall a lot, the fourth wall a lot. And it's like I want them for a moment to feel the responsibility and the just like loving connection of, oh, my God, you guys want to see this shit. Holy fuck. Let's do this. That ride here was fucked up. Let's get going. You know, and like, I think the audience feels it. I think that one by one, an audience will be like, I feel like they just, they just like connected. They just got me. Like, they just like sucked me in there, you know? And somehow for me, like the idea of like the accident, um, it is very purposeful. It's pretty staged. Um, it's a very sturdy container that then hopefully the audience starts to fill up, you know? Yeah. Oh, I'm so but, glad we, we got to the white van. <laughs> <laughs> it's idling outside your house now. <laughs> Mary, you want to kick us off with our lightning round? Yeah. So these questions we just ask in lightning round fashion. We're not necessarily going to respond, although sometimes I want to respond. I know Brian also too, but okay, we're really try to just go from one question to the next. Okay. And I'm answering all the questions. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The first one, my favorite one. <laughs> what is one thing in the theater industry that confuses you? Why there are not more female directors. What are three adjectives that describe your favorite working environment? Hot, loud, and fast. Is there something in your process that you find unique to you? Um, how um, strong and like rattling it is and how scared and overwhelmed I am that whole time. <laughs> What's your favorite yoga pose? Um, probably the crow just because I'm a show off. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Once you master the crow, it's just right? you feel so proud. It's such a badass <laughs> like crow into like headstand into plank something really fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> what is one hobby you have outside of theater so i'm a hardcore roller skater and like my basement has become like a roller rank like all my kids can shoot the dock like the pandemic we've really refined our skating skills i love that what is the scariest moment you have as a director the like first night of rehearsal do you have any particular um scary moments um oh no well like a no, specific um not like i've had scary moments that i've been watching um there have been a couple times where like i am as, as physical as i am and i really do like to do things that are physically rigorous and are alarming for the audience um i also want to i want my actors to be completely safe to the point where if I can't do it or if it, if they can't do it, like repeat it safely again and again, it's not worth, like I'm not comfortable with that. And there've been a couple shows that I've seen that even before the show started, I noticed a set piece and be like, that's not going to work. Someone's going to get hurt and then be in the front row when someone breaks their leg. And that, I hate, I hate that. I hate like the whole Spider-Man thing. Uh, like, I just don't think you can be badass. I feel like we've pushed like the physical envelope so far now with especially like sort of like any sort of fly work and stuff like that. But as soon as it's not safe, it's just not cool because you lose the audience. You know, 
like they're yeah, because like, the, the audience can sense it and then yeah. they're scared and they're immediately pulled out of the scene the story yeah they're totally popped out you have to like walk the edge but as soon as you cross the line it's just it's you're an asshole I feel so. like this is a love letter <laughs> to something. <laughs> I, don't um, I don't know what. Uh, what, and this is our final question that we always ask our guests. What was the last great piece of theater that you saw? Um, well, I saw two pieces that have stuck with me for a long time. The Streb piece uh, at um, Peak Performances. I loved that with the Bogart combo. Um, and then, you know, the David Byrne piece that now is being... You know, like Spike Lee filmed, so it's coming out soon. Did you see that um, on Broadway? No, I saw it actually at um, Forest Green, Forest Hills, whatever the tennis place is in Queens. I saw it years before it happened. And it is – so Annie B., who choreographed that, is one of my teachers. So I sort of always track her. But um, that is one of the things I'm so jealous of because I've always wanted David Byrne to be like – my guy and to be the, the one to do his show so a little jelly but uh it's, she nailed it um and both of those are really physical you know yeah uh, thank you so much this was yes. such a joy to have you on i know it was so uh, nice to meet you i like meeting you too <laughs> is there any way that our listeners can you know find you on social media do you have any public profiles or no. No. No, you got to be in the exclusive. That's not theatrical at all. You got to leave no trace. You got to like dump the van in a lake, man. You need to take <laughs> off the plates. No one can know who you are. I love it. That's the magic. <laughs> oh, I really just want to do a circle now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.